My next guest is a um, is a very charming and uh, provocative gentleman. Um, he, uh, whether you agree with his point of view or not on things, uh, he's always extremely interesting to uh, to talk to. I I don't agree with him on a great many subjects. There are a few that we do agree on, um, but uh, he certainly is the best in the world at what he does. And uh, Mr. Billy Graham. very nice to be with you, Woody, and I'd like to say that there's some things I don't agree with you on. <laughs> I know, but it's a question of which one of us will be converted by the time... <laughs> I, I hope I can convert you to um, agnosticism by the time the show is over. Well, I've had a lot of people try, and uh, the more they try, the firmer I get uh, in my conviction. Can I ask you what your favorite commandment is? Well, uh... <laughs> uh Right now, with a lot of teenagers, it's to honor thy father and thy mother. Really? That's, that's, my, that's my least favorite commandment. <laughs> well, I have Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Bill, here we are on a Monday afternoon. Yes. Where... We just celebrated our bicentennial episodes. Yeah, we had and we had um, a nice great, little live stream yesterday. Yeah, it was great conversations. Those uh, more of those are going to be coming. So um, yeah, we had fun. Um, and uh, <laughs> Jeffrey Carter from Facebook says, "Talk it up, fellas. I'm listening. I'm going to put that <laughs> comment right on the yeah. Uh, thank you platform here on our Facebook. Well, um, last well, we actually announced this um, the morning that we did our uh, 200th." episode was the morning that Billy Graham had died. They announced that he had died. And so we thought we'd talk a little bit about Billy Graham, but uh, that would be a jumping point off for us to talk a little bit about evangelism in the 21st century. Exactly. So, um, Billy Graham, uh, you know, I think one of the things that we talked we maybe mentioned this also when we were talking in the podcast last week. You know, I think the thing that about Billy Graham um, that there are a number of things. One is personal integrity. Uh, he did not. I mean, he he made a good living from his work, but he didn't get rich off of it. I think he he limited his salary like sixty grand or something for no, most it of it. Was more than that, so like one hundred fifty thousand. I mean, event at the top, but early it was lower. Well, yeah, he tried to go. He tried to. I think the what a what a you know a well paid senior pastor would make. I think is what his model was. I Osteen makes more than that. Well, he's yeah. yeah well, that's not that's an obscenely paid. Pastor, that's not a well-paid pastor. Hey, I'll tell you, obscene is in the eye of the one beholding uh, the paycheck, yeah. not the one receiving it. <laughs> it doesn't look as obscene when you're receiving yeah. it, I bet. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. What what in in the mouth of Mike Pence? It seems uh, uh, never say in the mouth of Mike Pence ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike Pence won't be with a woman, it, it seems odd, but Billy Graham, given his position and thinking of all the scandals that happened to other people, you know, his personal integrity uh, with, you know, and, and keeping good boundaries, um, he was able to admit generally uh, when he was wrong, he's, there was some progress uh, in his own spiritual journey and his uh, approach to certain social issues. So, uh, you know, I think he was a real Christian. I think that was something that came through. Your interview with his grandson reiterated uh, you you had it, you and Laura, Laura Ingram on the same day. <laughs> the thing, by, by the way, I hope to never say that out of my mouth. Exactly. Again, you and Laura Ingram. The thing that, that 
Tullian said to me that stuck with me the most. Which is, is, but for those of you who the, don't that's his know grand, the grand, grandson. The Graham genealogy. Tullian Chavidian, uh, yeah. named for Tertullian, the church father. Yeah. But he said that, you know, talking with his grandfather, Daddy Bill, they called him, all, all the grandkids. That's what oh, they call me too, Daddy Bill. Daddy Bill. Bill big Daddy, uh, uh, Little Bill sometimes. Little Bill, when I'm rapping. When, I'm ra- when you're rapping. He said that, like, w- talking with his grandfather was like, a 20th century church history seminar. He just knew everybody. And, you know, he would ask him about Jay Packer, tell me about, the, you know, Niebuhr, this, but, you know, like he would ask just, you know, you met Colonel Bart, you know, Tealick. He said his grandfather never said anything negative about any of the people he asked him about, which blows me away. And he said, you know, if he had, you know, had four things he thought nice about someone and 10 he didn't like, which I'm sure he didn't like everybody. He said you know, he would hone on the things he liked. And I think that is... There's something I find very commendable about that. <laughs> yeah, Jeff. yeah, Jeff, what'd you say? Jeffrey A. Carter from California said, I just wish his son Franklin would be more like his father. Well, the apple is a little far from the tree, as they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even know what uh, that's. We'll just let that speak for itself. And Bobby Grove from California says that he can't believe people have been questioning Billy's salvation. Yeah, we've been questioning your salvation, Bobby, but never. <laughs> Who, seriously, who's questioning about Billy Graham? Yeah, who, I, that's I, fascinating. Is it? Th- those are different circles. Now, I've I've heard people question, you know, who question some of his social stands and things like that. Yeah, but uh, what you have to tell us, Bobby? Who? Yeah. Who? Uh, Pat Robertson? No, Pat likes <laughs> Pat likes Pat likes Billy Graham. He's, he's a fan. No, I don't know. Probably uh, somebody in a real bunker in Idaho. Maybe <laughs> it could be. It could be. I don't know. But um, yeah, I think so. There's, you know, I mean, they estimate. He preached to over 250 million people in his lifetime, pretty, which is almost, that's mind-boggling. And um, so his, um, you know, it's funny. This is a story I thought I would tell you about. Uh, fundies? It's the fundies. Well, you know what? It's, it's, it's funny you bring it up because I— It feels like a radio show. Call it. It's like, I wish I had callers. If I would go to says fundies. Or, or it is a children's show you can watch on Netflix. Exactly. From, from France. The fundies. But, the fundies. Um, no, I mean, I— it's it's interesting. Uh, I grew up in Franklin County and uh, was around a lot of the more Jerry Falwell ish kind of people, and uh, they they thought he they you know it's funny you did say it. they thought you know he Jerry Falwell was was r- the true guy and that Billy Graham they questioned him because he hung out with uh, questionable people. <laughs> I guess he would hung, hang out with anybody, and that maybe ruined his reputation or his testimony. Um, I encountered a barrage of critics of Billy in confessional reform niches of Facebook. Stay away from those. <laughs> yeah, make sure you have your shots before you go to those places. Absolutely. Or be armed, yeah. Yeah, so, the, yeah, that, I mean, and that the other story that I, I found interesting was that he was invited to the 75th, it was the 75th anniversary of Time magazine, and I guess all the people who'd been on the cover were invited. And this is during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And they said that, they, that Billy Graham had been seated at President Clinton's table with he and Mrs. Clinton. And they said, Reverend Graham, we're, you know, we're glad to move you. We'd understand, you know, we, we're glad to move you from that table. He said, no, I'm not coming if you move me. I'd like to sit with President and Mrs. Clinton. So, I, yeah, that, I thought that, I mean, that was, that's a nice story. I thought that, you know, here's someone that is not, um, you know, sort of, you know, he was a friend to many people from across the political spectrum and stood with the Clintons in a time that was not easy for them, you know, politically or professionally. So. 
Now, yeah, he himself said he was not a theologian. And I guess that kind of leads a little bit to the question of, you know, maybe an assessment. Um, I mean, I mean, I think for a lot of people, that kind of evangelism style has passed. I mean, I think in terms of he in the line of Finney and Billy Sunday and uh, before him, Moody. I mean, in, I, at least in this particular stage of things. Now, I'm not saying that's not the case in other parts of the world. But, you know, in the Western world, the... Um, you know, the Colosseum kind of evangelism, um, where you have people who are coming to hear the gospel. Are you not entertained? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that, that's probably, that's past. Uh, I think uh, for a lot of different reasons, you and I were talking that part of the power of Billy Graham was the, the particular time that he showed up. You know, he mastered a lot of uh, the media of his time, uh, with the TV shows, the movies, the broadcasts, and things like that. And that was the most and radio Christian, before he started out with radio. And he's yeah. coming out in the, in the most Christianized period of American history. I mean, the early 1960s, you know, from the late 50s, 50s to 60s. Yeah. I mean, the six, early 60s was the peak of church attendance in the country. Right. So he's coming on the scene when he, post commie post World War II, you know, really a civic spirit committed to building civil society and also anti-communism you know like you know what did what did uh, what did uh, eisenhower say that being american means believing no matter what you believe you know, there's this sort of yeah. pro-faith kind of in, in contrast to a kind of communist yeah well the hearst and the hearst people you know uh got behind him because of his anti-communism and again i mean it's you know it's easy when you th- yeah, at this point to think of anti-communism being kind of the MacArthur. But, you know, the fact is that the Russians had infiltrated our government. Uh, some things never had, changed. Had, had. <laughs> some things never change. Uh, oh, yeah, Greg Laurie does. He comes around periodically. Uh, but, um, and there are, you know, it's interesting about those big Coliseum things. And maybe I think a lot of it's true in the Billy Graham era. A lot of the people who went to those were church people. Right, right, yeah. I mean, yeah, churches, yeah. Would, churches would have buses. And, you know, I kind of grew up in revivalistic Christianity. So, you know, you'd become a Christian three or four times a year. Or you'd leave, or then you got, you'd backslide and then you'd come back again. Um, where, um, you know, where there's a sense where, you know, it was a Christian event as much as you heard that story of the kid who, who goes down to like every youth revival and he would just go and every altar call, he'd go, fill me, Lord, fill me, fill me. And finally somebody goes, don't do it, Lord, he leaks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of us who grew up in those churches, some, I mean, I remember we'd have revivalists and, you know, they would just go through just as I am until someone raised their hands. Some of us would just raise our hands so we could get out of there. Yeah, you know? I mean, you, you, you don't and want to be in there But again, I, I don't want to minimize the terms of I think a lot of people were very much affected by that. One of the things, though, uh, and you and I talked a little bit about this yesterday, when I was a Young Life Area Director and, and um, I was part of a, we were, some of us were asking some critical questions about our methodology. And uh, particularly around the fact is our statistics were roughly the same as the Billy Graham statistics and that of all the pe- kids or of all the people at the Billy Graham crusade who made a convert, uh, I think it was like 2% a year later were in a church. We're still practicing. Now, again, now that may be, you know, nowadays it's a little different, but uh, because, you know, a lot of people don't go to church who profess faith. But the fact is, one of the questions was raised, was there something in the inherent way we were presenting the gospel that maybe was missing the mark? And I remember a couple of us just asked that question. Now, uh, we most of us got shouted down because it was like young life heresy <laughs> to question what we were doing at our camps. But I think the thing is to say something, is there something, was, um, 
was the kind of gospel message that was presented. Uh, a very material, sometimes a very materialistic, strange view of heaven that, you know, sometimes in those, you know, that would, and even Graham's illustrations. You know, the Great Commission is about making disciples, not converts. And even the idea of instantaneous conversion, and I guess part of me, I mean, again, I'm not trying to I, to, to um, cast stones at him or anything at that, because again, I, I think the value that he he did is is self evident. But is is there something about our current state, particularly the state of evangelicalism or even the state of Christianity in this country, that some of that approach to what exactly makes one a Christian? In other words, you say the prayer. You may or may not have a feeling, and you know, they keep talking to you till you have some kind of feeling, and yet you walk away. I, I know a lot of people— well, You say the prayer in evangelical circles or in mainline context, you're born into it, right? And you're born into a sociocultural framework, and then in a decent church, catechized into it, maybe catechized, maybe inoculated from, from it sticking. But for both, the question is, like, in either model— it, it, it neither seems to, to be as effective— as they once were. Well, or at least the idea, too, the way you you describe sociology, we, we used to talk about being born into a covenant community and part of the covenant family. I mean, I think there was— If you're, if you're a reformer, I mean, I don't well, I mean, but no, but Methodists it, or Catholics don't say Episcopalians. Well, but, <laughs> well, but, but I mean, if, if you, no, but if you baptize infants, there's a sense of whether or not you call it covenant or not, there's a sense that you're being born into the Christian community. Most Episcopalians would think language like that is banal, Calvinistic, and lowbrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think you know, it's interesting, too. I, I was just rereading some sections from William Abraham's book, The Logic of Evangelism, which is quite good. And he came up with a sequel kind of book called The Logic of Renewal. And both of them are outstanding. Abraham is just a top-notch, you know, kind of theologian with a strong philosophy background. And he talks about—one of the things he points out that's interesting is you look at the great— evangelists of the 18th century, Edwards, Whitfield, Wesley, they could hold their own with any theological people in the world. I mean, they were they were top-notch theologians. Edwards is one well, of the great it, theologians. Well, yeah, in this order, Edwards, Wesley. Whitfield. Whitfield. Yeah, Whitfield still was, was... No, they were Oxford. Yeah. They are Oxford yeah. trained. No, yeah, I mean, not, these they guys were stupid. No. Yeah, and then he said, you know, Finney is interesting because he says Finney had a lot to say, and there's a huge corpus, and was also the, had theological acumen. Some people, you know, think that there's a kind of... Some people accuse him of semi-Pelagianism kind of things and, and, and manipulative methods. Other people... But, I mean, you know... And he didn't have much patience with the academy, but he was not a dumb guy. And Abraham then looks at, like, by the early 20th century, we get Billy Sunday and D.L. Moody, where it's pretty bereft of theological content, the evangelist. I mean, there's not serious theological reflection. And then he kind of goes and talks about, quite positively, Billy Graham, like, for, for being an ecumenical figure and knowing his theological limits, but also not just being an evangelist, but being a figure that started a lot of evangelical ecumenical movements, like Christianity mm-hmm. Today, Wheaton right. we College, and, and some of their kind of ecumenical. He was a Bill Bridger. And, yeah, Bridger, and, yeah, definitely. And so was D.L. Moody, by the way. Yeah, yeah. D.L. Moody. Yeah. Uh, now, again, I, I would say Finney was an intelligent guy, but he was not a theologically trained guy. Right. And and that's, you know, and then, you know, one of the points in Abraham's in the intro of his book is that there's really a, a, a scarcity of serious theological reflection on evangelism in the church. Like, it, it's oh, relegated yeah. to sort of a backwater of practical theology, if that. And, you know, that, that, that that's just sort of like either it's in mainline circles, it's just not talked about. I mean, like, or in evangelical circles, it's talked about with this kind of uh, 
such a crass level of pragmatism that it's not something that's th- seriously theologically reflected. And Abraham's book is an attempt to actually, as a systematician, seriously wrestle with the question and comes up with his own interesting definition that people may or may not like, but he thinks of evangelism as something like initiation into the kingdom of God. It spends a lot of time dealing with biblical sources, working on issues of the kingdom. And I mean, it's, it's an interesting study uh, on the topic that I think I wish there was more. I mean, the books, I mean, I think the book is written like the eighties, like the late eighties or something, but or early nineties maybe. But so it's, I mean, it's, it's not a recent book, but it's not ancient. And I mean, I wish, wish there was more stuff like it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, in terms of, uh, you know, this whole idea of the main line and, and evangelism. I was part of a national Jewish Christian dialogue team, and we did we did different subjects. And so we got to the point of proselyti- you know, proselytizing. And so a mainline theologian um, said, this is what our position on evangelism is. And I love uh, a national Jewish leader who I loved absolutely. goes, at the end of it, he goes, if that is your position, then we have no problem. <laughs> and, to which I said, I said, well, I hate to, I hate to mess, I hate to break this up, but I don't know any Christian who would recognize what was just said there as being about evangelism. It was more almost like if you accidentally bump into our joyfulness, you know, that was kind of like, there was no, there was nothing about sharing And also, as Presbyterians, the, the accidentally walking into joyfulness is not— a, It's not going to happen a, very yeah, often. Yeah, it's, it's a very low risk. But I thought that was funny. That, uh, uh, my, my, and he's a, he was a beautiful guy, but he was so excited after the presentation about what their definition was of evangelism. But that's usually not a good sign. If someone who's nervous about evangelism, here's your definition of evangelism. Well, you know, it's interesting. Mark Oppenheimer, Leah Leibowitz, and Stephanie Buttock, the co-hosts of Unorthodox, all are Jews that like being proselytized. Like it makes us feel wanted. It makes us feel like that's right because they had Al Muller on their show. Yeah, they had wow. the Southern Baptist Convention. Eliel said, "You know, here's how I look at it: at Christian evangelism. It's like if you're at the gym and your your back's a little sore, and it got someone says." I got a great physician you should see. I got to get that. Yeah, that Jesus is, I think you call him the great physician. Ed Marcos, greatly, Al. Now, at the, uh, Al's going to be using this at the Southern Baptist Jew Converting Convention <laughs> seminar <laughs> the next time. Al, at the Leal Limits Doctor at Al. I'm just recommending the great physician. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Stephen Lipless, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, and Barry Stewart. 
If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Well, you know, it's interesting. Just even look at the history of, of, of evangelism and conversion. The early church um, was not aggressive in their proselytizing. You know, it's interesting, though. There's not one Pauline imperative to evangelize. No. No. So, like, it's fair because Daryl Guter, one of his, I mean, some of the people think, you know, the age church, it's because it's kind of assumed there's this sort of outward. Yeah, they preach the gospel. But, you know, the interesting thing, too, for instance, they would be mortified at a lot of traditional evangelistic services because you didn't go, when you, if, you, if you were talking to someone about the faith, you wouldn't go into the crucifixion. You wouldn't go into the doctrine of atonement because that's part of the mysteries. In other words, that was something that you, you really could only understand on the other side of faith instead of you know, going through, you know, he suffered for you and going through all the details. I mean, any of us of, of a certain uh, tradition have all been through the sermon where they go through step by step what Jesus suffered, you know, to evoke our kind of, you know, this is how much he loved you. Don't you want to say yes to that love? And that would have never, they would have never have done that in the early church because that would be, that's actually something that was reserved for the faith in terms of the mystery of the suffering. Now, they would talk about what we want to hear about our way of life. Uh, you know, it's kind of the way Justin Martyr was converted. They were talking about philosophy, and, he, and, and this Christian said, well, there's a different philosophy. Uh, and he goes, well, what is it? Well, we'll talk tomorrow. It sounds <laughs> like a Mormon. There's another testimony, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's maybe where they Maroney. Yeah. No, and I think even in the Protestant uh, circles. I mean, Protestantism was initially kind of a conversion, you know, Christians changing their mind about something or becoming a different kind of Christian. But really, you know, the first in the modern period, the first great really mission evangelistic movement was was the Jesuits. Uh, and, you know, they were, they, uh, again, that's all connected to the colonial, the Portuguese and the you know, Spanish empires. But it's remarkable, like the first 20 years of their, uh, of their existence, they had universities, they had colleges. From Brazil to China. That's one of the interesting things. Peru to China, yeah. If you look at the 16th century, what's so interesting, while while you have the sort of orthodoxies, Protestant, Catholic, ossifying and, and anathematizing each other, you have these Jesuits that are doing all kind of creative catechisms and reworking the faith in Southeast Asian lenses. And I mean, in profound ways. I mean, yeah. the, or Francis de Sales, yeah, who was who converted 75,000 Protestants back to to uh, Catholicism in, in, in Calvin's backyard. So through a kind of emphasizing love and that. Do you know, William Carey, right? The British, mm. that's the first guy that used the Great Commission as a missionary text. Hmm. Like, if we read the reformers and they look at the Great Commission, like that was the first century. Like you, the apostles went out in the places that were meant to find, get the faith. They got it. it, it yeah, it was. It was. Carey was the first. It's very interesting that that. Like, now I think that text. We look at that text and almost instinctually see it right. as something like that. But it's not. Um, wasn't obvious. Yeah, yeah. It, it's. It seems like Christopher Columbus, another uh, questionable figure, but. You know, his sense what he existed. The world's yeah. not flat, and he exists. Your questionable figure. He I'm, sailed the ocean I'm, blue I'm, in 1492. I left a few words out, but you know, if you read some of his correspondence, he has a sense that he's you know he's on a uh, you on know, a mission from God. Mission from God, yeah. And part of that includes converting the the uh, he called them the Indians, but uh, yeah. So I, I think. And that also, it's kind of, I was thinking about this, in a day and age where everybody's opinion, you know, they think, you know, their opinion, everyone's opinion is equally valid, or am I, not only my opinion is equally valid, but my position and my ideas, you know, are all, because I have them, they're right. I have 
the best opinions and the best words. <laughs> yeah, that that person who tweeted out that they like the impressions, we're gonna <laughs> we're just gonna get more of them now. Uh, but you know, how does that change? How does that change the whole approach of sharing the faith? Now, again, I, I've spent my entire life, my entire adult ministry, um, you know, working with kids. I started out working with kids who didn't go to church, didn't buy the Christian faith. Um, so I, and then my churches have often filled with people who are kind of on the border, who, who felt that they could come and that they they weren't, you know, they were looking, you know, mostly those were people whose intellectual issues hadn't been solved, and they found, you know, they found a place that was a safe place to think and ask questions. So over the years, I mean, I've seen lots of people make commitments to to Christ. Um, for the first time. Um, but, you know, it does, I think, this age that we live in, I think, how how does this affect? How does the zeitgeist we're in where everyone's validated? Uh, it's almost offensive, you know, let alone question your political idea. How how dare I even raise the issue that maybe, you know, hey, you have you ever considered Jesus as your as a possibility. I think it's a it's a different kind of feel. Leon Leibowitz says the problem with Christians is that they have it's all or nothing. You know, he's like, look, Jesus is Messiah, like you know, uh, 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 you know, body of Christ, maybe not, but like every organization has. You know, you start off, you know, if for ten bucks a month, you can be a, a friend of Christ, <laughs> and then in fifty, you're a contributor to Christ, and eventually you work your way up the body of Christ. You know, I might start off. You know, that's we might need like a graduate that. No, but I think like in an oversimplistic kind of way i think people look at sort of late modernity post-modernity whatever it one of two ways either it's the devil in that the kind of relativism is precludes a serious taking you know truth with a capital t seriously or something like this you know like there's truth decay and all the stuff like you know i'm thinking of doug gruthius's book or whatever but just came to mind but and then you have people and these people seem to forget that like a lot of um Enlightenment modernity wasn't a friend to the, to, to, to the faith in many ways. Like so, so other people would say that actually this kind of postmodern perspectivalism or late modern or hyperromantic, whatever you want to call it, actually opens up space to say we all have presuppositions and faith presuppositions, ones that are rooted in Jesus, are no more or less out of bounds than any other ones. And so, people, some people look at that as an opportunity. Some people look at it as a problem. Well, I mean, there wouldn't be evangelism. If there hadn't, if in some levels, the kind of evangelism, at least when we talk about Billy, Billy Graham, if the have, if the modernity hadn't opened up and taken away the idea of state churches and you know your whatever 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 your king or your prince is, that's what religion you are. So in some levels, the whole modern enterprise of evangelism is based on this idea that I'm a free agent a little bit, that I I'm a, I make my own destiny a little bit. Yeah, it's really interesting in Church of Max four three. Bart has a really interesting history. Like it's like 25, 30 pages in the small print of the modern missionary movement. And it's a really well done. It's really interesting. And he, in there, he says that what's interesting is the world came of age, so to speak, in the Enlightenment. As, as the world turned away from the church, the church finally turned to the world. <laughs> and, it, and it's an interesting, I mean, that's an interesting. The other thing I think that David Bosch in his book, Transforming Mission, which is one of the top five, maybe three books I read in seminary. Um, I have my copy of it sitting here. It's, it's, I think I wrote like a 50-page summary of it. My, it's Almost every page is annotated. But he has a section on evangelism where he's critical of John Stott and the Lousian Covenant saying that, you know, social justice and evangelism are both equal parts of Christian mission. And Bosch says, no, evangelism isn't part of mission. It's the heart of mission. And by that, he means everything, all mission is not evangelism. He thinks mission is a wider term of the church sent into the world right. to proclaim, bear witness to the kingdom, to be about the healing and reconciliation. But he says, but the heart of the Christian mission is to have the opportunity 
to call people into a relationship with the living Lord and Savior yeah. Jesus. So, like, that's at the heart. And if that's not at the heart of it, it's not Christian mission. No, I think you're right. You know, it's interesting. All, you know, mine, I've always been involved in a lot of social transformation stuff and international, local, you know, very concerned about Interstellar. It. <laughs> I haven't got there yet. But not that you know. Not that I know. Maybe even abducted. Oh, well, no. Well, someone did one time think I had been. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting, my most frustrating from an organizational, and it's happened every church, you know, you have something called either an outreach committee or an evangelism committee. And regardless of what church, regardless of what community, you know, that outreach committee would always drift over to do the social action stuff. Because in some levels, you know, the idea of what we're to bring in, you know, we want to reach out to unchurched people and, um, even churches where we were having lots of fun church people come in, it was something we institutionally were always not very good at. Um, and maybe that's maybe, you know, part of the problem that I have with, um, it, I didn't have a problem with, you know, Billy Graham was being who he was. One time I got drafted, coerced into being part, I was young, I was the area director Young Life. I was on some sort of evangelical fellowship, pastor's fellowship. And because I was the youth expert, they put me on this committee. They brought, as because kids were on drugs, they thought the solution, let's have a mass, let's have a stadium evangelistic event that that'll help get kids off drugs. I love it. At any rate, they, so they went to the Billy Graham Association. But of course, we, we were Chambersburg. We couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't sustain a, a full blown Billy Graham thing. So they sent one of, they have, you know, they have all these events. Yeah, form team. Like the true, they sent oh the double A guy. And I, the guy had three names. And Wesley was one of them. I can't remember his name, but from the beginning, it was just awful. And they even went out. If some of you remember Johnny, the the woman who was a paraplegic that had a powerful testimony. So they, I, one person says, "Is there anybody that's had a, a tragic injury in your community that can come do testimony?" And I'm sitting there. I'm just mortified. Even even at the age of 24, I knew this was awful. <laughs> and so they found this poor woman, and she was one of the testimony. And they said, "How about uh, anybody here know any drug addicts?" And everyone looked at me. <laughs> I said, "Yeah, but none none are going to come speak at your thing." Uh, uh, but I, I can remember, I, I stayed away from as much as possible. They wanted to have a youth rally. I, I, I somehow never got around to organizing that. Um, and finally, they said I had to be on the stage one night. And so I'm sitting on the stage trying to get as far away from everything as possible. And the sound person put, said, can you hold this? And it, literally, in my, in my lap was the microphone connector. And I, I swear, it took everything I had within me as this guy was preaching not to unplug it. Because it was all the formula, it was manipulative, and I, um, you know, it's the trouble, you know, Bill Hybels, for instance. That story I thought was going somewhere, and then at the end of it, you didn't pull the plug. I mean, that that was a lot on the front end for a story where you didn't pull the plug. I know, I know. That was like, that was like... It was the roller coaster was going up, 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 and then it just leveled out. I know there was no, there was no down the slope. I know. Would you see? I, it just I couldn't pull into I the people that asked. Me I would have just it. led with less. Though. I would have got to that quicker because when you're getting to that, I'm thinking, all right, we got the context. We're in Chambersburg. We got committee meetings. We're there's we're all we're building up to the thing where you pull the plug. I guess I'm confessing. You should tell it. You should tell it the other way. I guess I'm confessing that I was a coward. Maybe there we go. Yeah, all right. There, I, I like that. I, 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 I absolve you. I was a coward. I absolve you. That's just great. I just I wish you would have pulled the fuck. 
Yeah, obviously. Or what if you pulled it and miraculously it kept going? Is it, and then everybody came to faith. You know? <laughs> well, you it's, know, a, it's a Festivus miracle. <laughs> now, it's funny. Like, all right, so th- my 30-year-older self should say, yes, and as a, it was good that I didn't pull the plug. But I'm like you. I should have pulled the plug. <laughs> yeah, just for the sake of the story. Just well, no, sure. for the sake of what was being said there. But yeah, so I think, you know, that this this idea of any kind of formula. I mean, I think it's funny. We're always looking for formulas. Where, and it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, let's face it. Oh, you know, how much of your worship team is based on a particular formula that we used to use in Young Life Clubs that they used to use? I mean, go back. You can find... You can find the pattern in Charles Finney. You, you, you oh, know. no. I mean, yeah. There was an article in Christianity. And I tried to find it like a year ago. And I couldn't find I'll try to find it again. But it was somebody that wrote this great piece about, they were like at some meeting about the what's the gospel, whatever. And I think their background was in New Testament studies or church history or something. But they just spent some time in a study of the first sermons in Acts. And looking at these proclamations, too, yeah. he looked at all the ser- sermons to non-believe, you know, to people that have to. And he's like, you can't find a single thread. Some of them mention the resurrection. Some don't. Some of them talk about the cross. Some don't. Some just talk about, you know, you know, you look at the, the Mars Hill. You, the, the, there's such variety yeah. in the book of Acts. And, it, and, 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 and the fact that there's variety, even with Luke using a formula. Right, 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 right. Yeah, in one very, canonical source, there's yeah. not a formula. It's not, it's not like the deuteromistic. Because all the sermons. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I think that is. I think they're, and, you know, Christianity spread in a lot of different ways in the, early, in the early years. And there was lots of variety. I mean, there was a whole lot of variety in the early church for the first, you know, three, four. Well, there's actually always has been a lot of variety. And uh, different people came, were looking for different things. And even part of what eventually becomes sect or even eventually condemned, part of it was a strategy of how to reach different people. How does the message of Christ fit for people that are more Hellenistic, who are less interested in, who can't make sense of resurrection? I mean, we don't often think of the Gnostics as a mission strategy, but I think part of them— that part Oh, of absolutely. Was, Scott Sundquist, who you know, yeah, yeah. Was, taught missiology and church history when I went to seminary, and he said that one of the signs of church vitality is heresy. Yeah, because it shows that you're pushing the boundaries, and that and people are asking critical questions, and things get murky and fuzzy. And you know, if there's no, if there's none of that, then you're probably aren't the church isn't kind of reaching into new places and contextualizing with an ever kind of changing world. <laughs> or they're not learning enough to even be a heretic at seminary. Yeah, exactly. yeah or, or that could be the <laughs> I mean, case too. I think that's probably probably the problem now. Well, I do. I think um, you know. One again, we. We'd say this so much it becomes you know self-evident, but it's good to remind ourselves that uh, you can't help but be in the time you're in. Uh, you're reacting to, you're responding to um, what you know the, well, the Christianity, the culture around you. Billy Graham was a unique uh, person for a unique time. Um, he reflects some of the best of those times, and he also you know the kind of Christianity he came from uh, has its own particular blind spots, just like you and me and the rest of us. Yep. Thank so, God for, you know, his his life. and Yeah. And uh, maybe, you know, um, rather than sitting around talking about Billy Graham and critiquing his theology, uh, wondering about his methodology, maybe if a few of us would take a, some time to get to know people who don't necessarily believe anything and have a conversation with them, maybe if we loved them enough, we would do that. Yeah. Yeah. The church is always one generation away from extinction. So... <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it feels like one week away. Yeah, thank, thank God for raising up evangelists. Yeah, God bless. Just as I am without one plea But that thy blood was shed for me 
And that thou bidst me come to thee O Lamb of God, I come I come Just as I am Though tossed about With many a conflict Many a doubt Fightings and fears Within, without O Lamb of God, I come I come Just as I am Thou wilt receive Wilt welcome, pardon Cleanse, relieve Because you promise I believe O Lamb of God, I come I come Just as I am Without one plea But that thy blood Was shed for me And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come.